Amen. Yeah, you can take a seat. Thanks, Sammy. Thanks, team. Can we give this team a hand? They're all gone except for Rhett. Hi, Rhett. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thanks for answering. My name's Bradley. I'm on staff at Orchard, uh, and I'm really excited uh, that I get to be here tonight to hang out with all of you. I realized like 12 minutes ago that BASIC has been a part of my life for 12 years and the amazing thing, yes, thank you, I'm old. The amazing thing about that <laughs> is that what makes BASIC is not the building, it's not the room, it's not like the name of the organization, it's not even the mission, it's the people. So thank you for being here because you make BASIC, BASIC. Okay, I didn't plan on saying that. This week, we are starting a short series. Pause to laugh that I just said sharding, okay? Go ahead. <laughs> All right, great. We're starting a short series where we take an intentional look at a symbol that's become the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Okay, I'm talking about the cross. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a bunch of letters helping the earliest Christian communities understand and live their faith, Paul said that he chose to know nothing except for Jesus and his crucifixion. Nothing was as important to Paul as the cross. The cross is a Roman execution tool. And it's at the heart of the Christian faith. And I don't know about you, but that honestly fills me with questions. Like I can wrap my head around the idea of an all-powerful God who wants to save a broken world and the people in it. And I can even understand God doing so by coming to earth in the form of a human named Jesus. But why was death part of that plan? Why did Jesus have to die? The truth is that for the last year, that question has tripped me up. And it trips up the people, it tripped up the people who knew Jesus back in the day too. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why did Jesus have to die? If you've spent any time in churches throughout your life, you've probably heard a ton of different answers to that question, right? You might've heard stuff like, well, Jesus died for your sins or Jesus paid the price for our ransom or Jesus was punished in our place or Jesus was showing us the power of sacrificial love. You might've heard words that remind you of a courtroom or being rescued from slavery or victory on a battlefield. And for some of us, these explanations have helped us to understand the love of God and to be grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus. But maybe others of us have heard these explanations and they've made us feel a little bit guilty. Like Jesus died so that we could do better or be better, so we better get started, right? And whether you've never given this a second thought or you felt this tension, that's okay, because the truth is that the cross is not only the most important aspect and symbol of Christianity, it's also Christianity's greatest mystery. In fact, Paul admitted this 21 times in his letters to the early churches. The cross, the death of Jesus, and what that means for us is a powerful, beautiful, world-changing, paradigm-shifting, miraculous mystery. So all that language we hear about ransom and sacrifice and judgment and substitution and appeasement, they're all human-made metaphors and motifs that we've come up with in an attempt to understand the mystery of the cross. They all have truth in them that helps us get God's unimaginable love and kindness and power, but none of those words have what it takes to tell the full story. What happened on the cross? 
It's bigger than we can understand. It's more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And it reveals to us a creator God who is kinder than we think, more powerful than we can comprehend, and more loving than words can describe. So in the next couple weeks, we want to look at just a few different aspects of this mystery together so that we can encounter the love and the power of Jesus in a new way as we move toward Monday Thursday and Good Friday. And then we'll party because it'll be Easter. Cool? Cool. Okay, story time. So a few weeks ago, I'm going to move this a little forward so I can see you and I know that that messes with the lights and I'm sorry. A few weeks ago, it was my turn to put my three-year-old son Rowan to bed. Now, just as a reference point, I want to show you who I'm dealing with here. Look at the screen. That's Rowan. He is adorable and tenacious and sometimes a pain in my butt. Now, if you've never found yourself putting a toddler to sleep, I'm going to outline the process for you real quick, okay? This is a process that can take anywhere from 90 minutes to 12 hours, depending on the day. And it usually looks something like this. First, we go to the bathroom, which has its own 14-step process that we don't have time for tonight, okay? Then we pick out our jammies, and then we pick out different jammies because the first one's got a tiny speck of water on them. And then we beg for snacks. And sometimes we get snacks because mom and dad are weak. And then we brush our teeth with unicorn sparkle toothpaste, which, by the way, is delicious. And then we grab our little stuffed dog, whose name is Sound Machine Toilet, and I don't know why. And then we pick out two books to read, and we hopefully don't notice when mom and dad skip pages. And if all of that goes well, We finally reach the point where we take one more drink of water, we go into our room, we lay down, we say a prayer, and for the love of God, go to sleep so mom and dad can have a drink and watch Abbott Elementary in peace. (laughs) So at this point, we've made it to the final step. I'm exhausted, bleeding. Just kidding, I wasn't bleeding. I pray for Rowan, I give him a kiss, I say goodnight, and it's finally quiet for a few minutes. And then out of the silence, I hear a whisper. Insert swear word here. Now, what I'm expecting is for him to tell me that he needs more water or like his butt itches or something. But instead, he asked me a question. Rowan says, can Jesus really hear me when I talk? No joke, he said that. Adorable, right? So now my Christian dad reflex is kicking in and I'm like just trying to play it cool, right? I want to encourage him, but I don't want to freak him out because tonight Rowan might pray out loud for the first time and it would be great if I could walk out of that room and tell my wife, Alex, that it was me that he prayed with. So, you know, I take a deep breath and then I say, well, yeah, bud, Jesus always hears us and loves to talk to us. And then I wait and it's quiet for a moment. And then Rowan says, Hey, Jesus, watch this. Rah, 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 rah. And then he goes, that for you. Almost, I don't know if he's saying like, you're welcome when he says that or like, how about them apples? I don't know. So I guess that was Rowan's first prayer. <laughs> Not exactly what I had in mind at the time, but I know that those of you in the room who know Rowan are thinking, well, yeah, that checks out. He's a goofy dude. In fact, he is completely shameless. Everyone he meets is either already his friend or they're about to be his friend and they don't know it yet. And I love that Rowan didn't feel like he needed to change that about himself when he talked to Jesus. In fact, if he had prayed the kind of like folded hands, bowed head, closed eyes, timid prayer that I learned when I was a kid, I would have been freaked out. I'd have thought, who told you that that's how you have to do it? Who told you that you have to cover up your shameless, goofy self to talk to God? And you know, I kind of have that question for myself and for all of us. Who told me that I have to cover up 
my shameless, goofy, kind of stupid, way too loud laugh self when I get close to God. That I have to create some kind of cleaned up Christian version of Bradley in order to be worthy of God's attention or love or forgiveness. Who told you that? Was it a parent or a teacher or a pastor or a friend? Or was it you? What is this nagging voice in our heads that convinces us that we are unworthy as we are? That we got to clean up and get right before we can approach the one who created us. Now that nagging voice, it has a name. That nagging voice is called shame. The author and researcher Brene Brown says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or just the experience of believing that we are uniquely flawed and therefore unworthy of love and connection. Shame is the voice that convinces us that there is just something about us that's messed up, that we can't be seen or known as we are by people or by God, because if we were, we'd be judged and rejected. And shame says that there's only two things that we can do about that problem. We need to self-correct by getting to work to fix ourselves, which by the way, it never really works. And we also need to self-protect by finding a way to hide ourselves, our doubts, our pain, our struggles, instead of seeking help from our creator who loves us and the communities that care for us. We can experience shame about our appearance, our prayers, our questions or doubts about God, about how we flipped off the dude who clearly doesn't understand how to drive in a roundabout, about our relationships, about sex, about our mental health, about how we feel lost in our life while everyone else seems to have it together. And the list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Shame is a central part of the human experience. It's often working in the background of our lives, quietly affecting the way that we think and act and interact with people and with ourselves and with God. And there are two things that we need to recognize about shame. Number one is that shame is universal. It's something that happens to us and it happens to all of us. So we're not alone. And number two, shame is a liar. It's been lying since the very beginning. In fact, it is the oldest lie in the book. Now, Rowan hasn't heard the voice of shame yet, clearly. But one day, he probably will. In fact, I know he will. And when that day comes, my hope and prayer for him will be the same as my hope and prayer for us tonight. That we can learn to identify the voice of shame and have the courage to bring it to the cross. Because it is in the person of Jesus and his death on a cross that my shame and your shame can be silenced once and for all. Okay, so go ahead and grab a Bible. You're going to find them under your seat. Go ahead, go, go grab one. It's okay, it's okay. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and it's not going to be hard because it's right there in the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. This third chapter of Genesis is the third episode of the Christian story of creation, okay? So before we dive in, let's get the bullet points of the first two episodes, okay? Previously in Genesis. God creates the universe and everything in it, and he says, that's good, okay? And then God creates two humans named Eve and Adam. And the author of Genesis said that Eve and Adam are both naked and unashamed. 
Naked because clothes hadn't been invented yet. Who said that? Was that you, Carter? You're the worst. Naked because clothes hadn't been invented yet. And unashamed. God puts Adam and Eve in a garden. And he called the garden Eden, which means paradise. And there's just one thing that Adam and Eve have to remember. They could eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if they did that, they would die. And that would be a bummer. But they didn't need that fruit. Because Eden had everything they could ever need. In the garden, there was no separation between God and God's people. They were in perfect relationship. Adam and Eve were dependent on God, and God provided everything they needed. So all their physical needs came from God. All the love and the connection and the safety and the empowerment that they would ever need, it all came from God. There was no shame, no sickness no sadness, no anxiety, no pain. And God looked at it all, at this paradise and these people, and he said, now that's very good. The author Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote a storybook Bible for kids, and it's awesome. Here's what she wrote about the creation of humans. She says, God breathed life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. You look like me, God said. You are the most beautiful thing I've ever made. And catch this, there's a slide for it. God loved them and they were lovely because God loved them. Adam and Eve were lovely because they were loved. And then comes chapter three, when a snake talks to Eve and they eat fruit and it is actually a bummer. And if you grew up in church, you've probably been taught that this is the story of the first sin, right? But there's something else in this story, something under the surface that I have missed my entire life. So the snake approaches Eve and says, hey, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And Eve is like, no, just the one in the middle, okay? He said we'd die if we did that. And then look with me at what happens next, starting with Genesis chapter three, verse four. Here's what the snake says. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. Bold-faced lie. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom that it could give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Y'all, do you see what happened here? This snake, who can somehow talk and no one thinks it's weird, but whatever. The snake says to Eve that if she eats the fruit, then she would be like God. She would know more. It's as if the snake was saying, listen, Eve, you're not who you could be. But if you ate this fruit, you'd be much better. So the fruit hadn't been picked yet. What we know as the first sin hadn't even happened yet. And everyone, the voice of shame was already talking. And eating that fruit was Eve's first opportunity to self-correct, to fix her own flaws And the voice of shame is so powerful that Eve forgets that she's already made in the image of God. She forgets that she and Adam are lovely because they are loved. And she sees the fruit and she thinks, well, maybe this can fix what's wrong with me. And so she takes a bite and Adam does too. And then verse seven says that at that moment, they noticed that they were naked. Awkward. And the voice of shame goes to work again. So immediately they look for a way to self-protect They get some fig leaves and they sew them together to hide their nakedness. And when God shows up to be with them in the garden, the fig leaves aren't even enough. 
And so they hide themselves entirely. And then we read in verse 9, God calls to them saying, where are you? Which is actually a funny question because of course he knew where they were. He's God. In fact, what God meant here was, why are you hiding from me? At least that's the question that Adam answered. And I can't imagine the degree to which his answer broke God's heart. Adam said, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. What happened in the garden isn't just Christianity's way of explaining the first sin. The author of Genesis wants us to see ourselves in this story, to see ourselves as God's treasured, beloved creation, lovely because we are loved, but caught in this isolating, exhausting cycle. In this cycle, just like Adam and Eve, we are tossed back and forth between the lying voice of shame and the power of sin. Now, Brene Brown already defined shame for us, so let's define sin real fast, okay? It might not be exactly what you think it is. Now, people in church, we spend a lot of time talking about sin with a little s. It's the word that we use to describe these specific actions that are harmful to us and harmful to other people, right? We ask questions like, well, is this a sin or is that a sin? But I want to introduce you to sin with a capital S, capital S sin. It's the name used in scripture for a destructive power that is outside of us, but it's at work in the world. Capital S sin is outside of us, but it is at work in the world. It pulls people, all people, away from living the lives that they want to live and being the people that they want to be. And we, as humans, we can't fix it, no matter how hard we try. And we've definitely tried. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul wrote about this power. He said, I don't really understand myself. I feel you, Paul. I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And then he goes on. He says, there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then he says, catch this. He says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So capital S sin, not little S sin, capital S sin. It's the power that was at work when Adam and Eve broke trust with God. And it's also why friends and family and partners and spouses continue to break trust with one another. It's why greed seems to run the world while poor and vulnerable people suffer. And y'all, it's why George Floyd was murdered back in 2020. Capital S sin is the reason for all forms of hatred, racism, sexism, and homophobia. And it's also why it's so hard for us to forgive when we've been hurt. It's why we become addicted to pornography, or we find ourselves abusing alcohol, or unprescribed drugs like Adderall or Xanax. In this cycle, there's a picture of it. Sorry. That one. Yeah, that one. And this cycle... The lying voice of shame, it makes us forget that no matter what, we are lovely for no other reason than that we are already loved by God. And it leaves us vulnerable to the power of sin. And then the power of sin only increases the volume of the voice of shame. And then around and around and around we go. And that cycle leaves us feeling exhausted and isolated. Exhausted 
from all of our noble but fruitless attempts to self-correct, to fix our own flaws, and isolated, hiding beneath these veils of self-protection that only serve to separate us from our creator who loves us and is actually the source of everything we need. In Genesis, that veil of self-protection, it took the form of a fig leaf, right? And then later in the, in the Old Testament, Moses covers his face with a literal veil. The people made him because they were too afraid to get close to someone who talked to God. And then when the temple was built in Jerusalem, this massive veil was constructed. I have a picture of that too. This is a tiny model, okay? Imagine it like that, but like really big, okay? It was 30 feet tall. And it blocked both entry and sight into the Holy of Holies, which was the place where people believed the presence of God lived. So no one could go into God's presence, except for the high priest, the best of the best. And even he could only go in once a year when he made a sacrifice for the sin and the shame of the people. And that veil in the temple was the ultimate symbol of separation between God and his people in this system of worship that was built on shame. And if we're honest, we still tend to agree with the voice of shame and we construct these veils for ourselves, don't we? I do. Veils of performance, veils of appearance, veils of the million distractions we have every day, veils of blame, or maybe veils of self-hatred, where we write ourselves off. So tonight, if you can see yourself in that cycle, if you can identify the pole of the power of sin in your life, if you can hear the voice of shame telling you that your failures and your mistakes make you unworthy and unlovable, if you're feeling exhausted and isolated from all your attempts to fix yourself, or to put up veils to keep everyone at a distance. You need to remember that shame is a liar. You are safe with God. You are accepted by God and you are loved by God beyond your wildest dreams. And there is nothing and no one that could ever, ever take that from you. And you also need to remember that you're not alone because shame is universal. This room is full of human beings just like you. And shame happens to us too. And there's hope for all of us. It's the hope that Paul was talking about when he says at the end of Romans 7, he says, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The answer. The solution to all of our exhausted, isolated spinning is found in the person of Jesus. It was Jesus who came to break the cycle to defeat the power of sin and silence the lying voice of shame once and for all. Because Jesus was God, breaking out of the confines of the temple so that he could walk around in human skin, just like ours. Jesus came to give us a clear view of our creator, replacing the lie that God is angry or judgmental or distant with the truth that God is kind and loving and God invites each and every person to come close to find rest and healing. Jesus held the unlimited power of God, only to lay that power down, taking on the fullness of the human condition. 
Jesus allowed himself to be unjustly arrested and sentenced to death on a cross, which was the ultimate symbol of shame in Roman society. He was betrayed and denied by his closest friends. He was stripped naked. He was publicly shamed with nowhere to hide. He suffered torture with no mercy, and he was nailed to the cross, all the while enduring that laughing, nagging voice of shame, saying, you're not who you say you are. You are worthless, unlovable. You are utterly alone. And there on that hill that he created, by the way, at the hands of people that he created and loved, Jesus died absorbing the shame and the sin of all of humanity. And here's where the writers of the Gospels tell us about one of the greatest mysteries of the cross. Okay, y'all don't miss this. It's insane. As Jesus died, the temple veil, that massive 30-foot curtain separating people from the presence of God, the symbol of our shame, that veil was torn all by itself from top to bottom. There are reports of this. People were freaked out. It's as if God himself reached out and ripped it and said, enough. So why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Not to make us feel bad. Not to convince us to try and become good enough. No, Jesus chose to die in shame to defeat shame. Jesus chose to die so that the lying voice of shame could be silenced so that we could remove our veils of self-protection and come close to our kind and loving and powerful creator. In fact, Paul tells us that when Jesus endured the cross, he scorned its shame. He took away its power and significance. He declared once and for all that shame is unworthy to speak to his people. It's not allowed. And God replaced the voice of shame with another mystery. It's called grace. Grace is the completely unconditional love of God, the completely undeserved kindness of God, the completely unearned power and presence of God. Grace means that God loves you and God likes you and God is with you and God is for you no matter what. There's nothing you could ever do to earn that and there's nothing that will ever, ever, ever take it away. God tore the veil so that we don't have to hide behind ours. No more fig leaves. No more exhausting ourselves to try and fix our own flaws. No more painful isolation. No more deafening voice of shame. Instead, just the kind voice of our creator, the God of love saying, you don't have to hide anymore. Come to me and be seen. You don't have to strive anymore. Come to me and find your healing, find your rest. You are already lovable because I love you. You are already worthy because I choose you and there's not a thing you can do about it. That's the power of the cross. It's a mystery. It doesn't make sense and it doesn't have to. We're all on this journey together where we slowly start to understand and receive the incredible love and grace of God so that then we can offer it like Jesus with open hands to the people around us. So I'm gonna invite the band up and in the next few minutes, I'm gonna pray for us and then I just wanna give you like a minute to breathe, okay? You can just sit and think. You can write in your Bible or in a journal. You can talk to God. You can go and pray with someone 
Andrea and Kristen and Topher are back there and they would love to pray with you. And as you do this, here are some questions to consider, okay? You'll find these along with some scripture on the bookmark you got when you walked in the room or maybe it's on your chair. It's on your chair. Here are the questions. Can you see yourself in this cycle of sin and shame? What might it feel like to be free? Can you hear God's loving invitation to leave your shame at the cross where it belongs, to allow yourself to be fully seen and known by God, to be reminded that you are lovely because you are loved? What might it look like to accept that invitation? And what would be some ways for you to let God silence the voice of shame in your life? So I'll pray and then we'll take a minute. God, you see every single person in this room. And you don't just see faces. You don't just see bodies. You see hearts. You see minds. You see the same thing that you saw before you created the world. These people who were in your mind from the beginning. God, would you remind us that your love is not conditional? That you love us because you love us, because you love us, because you love us, because that's what you're like. And God, would you give us the courage to take the veil off, to be honest with you about who we are and where we're at, so that we can see you, see your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. God, would you help that to become just a little bit more real for all of us tonight? And then God, would you help us to reflect that truth about you to the people around us? Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we just give these few minutes to you.